entering the Freedom Hut. Happy New Year, everyone. 2020 is here, and we have a lot to get to today. Democrats are rooting for America's enemies in the Middle East. You've got Iranian militias storming the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. You have people calling for it as Trump's Benghazi. Also, a good guy stop a church shooter from a mass carnage event in Texas. More anti-Semitic attacks, hate crime versus thought crimes, and the Pope slaps away a hand. Coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America, great, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst, former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. 2020 edition. Very exciting stuff. Uh, glad to be back here today. I had a good vacation except for getting sick right before my birthday, and I'm still a little bit uh, under the weather, so if my voice sounds weird to you, it's because it's weird. Uh, And also, producer Mark doesn't even feel he's got a sniffle, so we're like the walking wounded today in the Freedom Hop. Uh, We we couldn't stay away for another day. Mark was like, forget Jamaican beaches. I don't need any of that. I want to come back to the Freedom Hop and make sure that America is getting all that it needs. No offense to America, but I, I do need Jamaican beaches. Well, Who okay. doesn't need that? Well, after the election, I told him he gets to yes. take another. He gets to take another vacation. In the meantime, we have much to get to today, uh, and and I wanted to just start off with what we could expect the Democrat and media response would be after an incident that looked like it was going to get very, very ugly, very unsettling in Iraq. We could have had the storming of an embassy. Now that has happened before. Uh, This is a situation that for some would be either reminiscent of the storming of the uh, U.S. embassy in Tehran or what happened in Benghazi, where you had two U.S. facilities, uh, the consulate and the annex. It wasn't really a consulate, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, Two U.S. facilities overrun by terrorists. We were told it was a video. We will get to that, to be sure. Uh, But I just wanted to give you some of the background on what's going on in Iraq. And also put out there, for those of you who are very close listeners to the show, I told you some months ago that we were going we we're going to be put under pressure from Iranian-backed uh, groups and from the Iranian-backed, not just militia groups, but also the Iranian-backed uh, political groups that have seats in the Iraqi parliament. They want, us, they want us out. And by the way, just because they want us out, it doesn't mean we shouldn't get out. It doesn't mean that we should... Uh, avoid the decision that we think is best. Sometimes what the bad guys want you to do is, in fact, the thing that you have to do under the circumstances. See Afghanistan, for those of you who are wondering another circumstance like that. But but let's start with what happened here. Um, and and th- this is going to turn very quickly into because nothing terrible happened at the embassy, thank God, uh, because of quick work by United States Marines and by the U.S. military, the administration, Uh, They did the right thing here. They shored up the embassy, but it got a little scary there for a few moments. Um, And certainly the video of it was was circulating all over social media. The quick backstory to this, and it's also just a reminder of Trump's foreign policy is better than Obama's. Trump's economy is better than Obama's. There aren't whole parts of cities being burned down because of hatred of the police under Trump as there were under Obama. I mean, we, we have... We have a lot to look at here and say, hold on a second. How could any how could any objective observer based on solely the results of what this administration has done? How can anyone look at this and say 
one, that it doesn't compare favorably to his predecessor, Barack Obama, but also why would you ever want to trust some of these Democrats, these loons? Although we lost, we lost another one, did another one's down from the Democrat field. We'll get to that. Why would you want to put them in charge? What reason other than Trump hatred and a love of open borders and socialism and big government? Well, I guess those are all the reasons that they have, uh, or many of the reasons they have. Why would you want to put a Democrat in charge? Foreign policy is, even for those of you who say, look, you know, that's not an area of tremendous interest, uh, or rather you think it gets too much focus in the media, which is true. The, the media loves to show how smart they are by learning the names of some obscure country or obscure city in the, in a country somewhere. Iraq obviously doesn't fall into that category. but uh, And then they go on TV and pretend like, I've known all along what's going on in this corner of Papua New Guinea. Um, they don't know, but they pretend to know. Uh, they are generally ignoramuses in the television media. Uh, the left-wing Democrats who pretend to be so worldly and cosmopolitan, they spend more time spraying their hair than they do reading about the places they're talking about. And I know because I've seen them doing it. But in Iraq, you have a place that, once again, the previous administration failed and this current administration is has not fixed it. It's not all better. And it's not going to be great, by the way. But is dealing with this in a more sound fashion than uh, the Democrats did and then his predecessor did. And amazing that these Obama foreign policy figures, people like Ben Rhodes and Samantha Power and others, they'll take to Twitter right away and show us exactly who they are, which is desperate to defend the legacy of an administration that was an abject failure on foreign policy. You cannot point to a single place. And people say, oh, this is a whataboutism. No, it's not. We're going into an election year, right? You have a Republican administration, three years going into fourth year now of foreign policy. You have eight years of Democrats before it. This matters. The comparison matters. It's actually essential to the decision-making that we'll all have in about 300 and some odd days. It's close, my friends. It's game time. 2020 is going to be a big year here in the hut. But now back to Iraq for a moment. What happened? Well, as you know, there has been malign Iranian influence in Iraq since the U.S. invasion there. I mean, you could say it stretched even back before that, although Iraq and Iran had, I believe, the longest declared war of the 20th century. It went on for about a decade between two nation-state combatants. Someone could fact-check me on that, but I think that's the case. The Iran-Iraq war stretched on for about nine, nine years and change. Um, so and horrific casualties and a lot of very bad stuff going on there. But the Iranians, because Iraq has a Shia majority population, roughly about 40 percent of the population of Iraq is Shia. Maybe it's closer to 50 now. Um, and then you have about 20 percent Sunni and then you got about 10 to 15 percent Kurd. And the rest is a mix of you know Yazidis and uh, different different groups of Christians. Well, there were Christians in Iraq, not really anymore. No thanks to what happened in the Obama years, or to be fair, in the Bush years. But you have these Shia-backed militias, and they can turn the heat up to try to get what they want. This is classic partnering, in a sense, between, well, not just an external adversary, the Iranians, but also these groups that have their, they have connections in the political process. There's a little bit of a Sinn Féin IRA thing going on here. These, these different Shia militias have politicians um, who are pushing their are pushing the interests of Iran and the Shia uh, the Shia majority in Iraq pushing the the interests in the parliament and then when they don't get what they want they have this 
this uh, military wing. They have this this faction, armed faction that they'll bring to bear. And these these groups, by the way, let's keep in mind, were responsible for a large percentage of U.S. casualties in Iraq. So these Shia militia groups are they're our enemies. And they've been our enemies for a long time. They were killing U.S. soldiers. We were not at war with Iran, but Iran was at war with us in Iraq, fighting a proxy battle there. The Shia militia groups were using something called EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, that were designed to go through the holes of armored vehicles so that they could kill and maim everyone inside, our soldiers. So we have we took a lot of losses uh, because Iranian-made EFPs and Iranian-backed groups with those specific explosive devices were killing our guys. And we were not nearly hard enough on them, in my opinion, in that process. And then you had the Obama administration, which just took this, I'm going to bend the knee to Iran, anything to get them into an international nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is a really fancy name for a steaming pile of horse manure. Um, and they came up with this deal, and it was Obama's foreign policy legacy. And now we see that the Iranians didn't change any behavior they all they got was a lot of money literally delivered to them with pallets of cash by the Obama administration. I'll never forget being on CNN talking about this. They they gave us what they gave us uh, 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 hostages and we, we gave them cash. We gave them pallets of cash. Right. Just just big old bricks of money. But that wasn't that wasn't paying off a terrorist regime. Oh, no. I went with all the foreign policy experts, you know. I think even Gurgling Gurgan was with you. Terrorists not paying. You know, it was nonsense, nonsense. But so you have these groups, and they will sometimes engage in violence uh, for very explicit political purposes inside of Iraq. And in this case, they harmed a U.S. Uh, they they harmed U.S. soldiers and killed the U.S. contractor. So what did the Trump administration do? The Trump administration didn't say that's really naughty. We're going to send you a very terse letter. Shia militia groups, uh, we're going to actually take action against you. We are going to blow up some of these groups. We're going to uh, hurt you. We're going to hit you in ways that you will remember. And so then uh, you had these Shia back groups, the popular mobilization forces, they call it, essentially the, uh, these, sorry, rather Iranian back groups who looked like they were about to storm the embassy. I mean, they set fire to things. They got in, into the outer ring of security. And there are some very harrowing photos of U.S. Marines, who Marines do embassy security around the world. God bless our Marines. And they didn't end up overrunning the United States embassy. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this embassy. It was built to be a fortress. I think it cost 750 was it 750? Yeah, 750 million dollars, I believe, was what this thing cost. So you've got roughly a billion dollar, close to a billion dollar facility um, that they spent just to make sure that we have an embassy there that would not be easy to overrun. Um, but Kataib Hezbollah, that's right, Hezbollah, like the terrorist group in Iran, I mean, in uh, Lebanon, that's also backed by the Iranians. See, the Iranians are very bad. I know that's the most simplistic thing that anybody could ever hear today. But it is a reminder because the Obama administration took the approach of, no, the Iranians are just misunderstood. The Iranian regime, if placated, if bought off, might be more buddy-buddy with the international community and with us. We just have to be nicer to them. No, that's not the approach. That's certainly not what Trump does. And so yet again, we have a moment where Trump is supposed to be in over his head on foreign policy. This is, we're told, an area where he doesn't understand what's going on. He has no... And yet 
the decision-making is better. The outcome is better. They were calling for this to be, and I mean major media figures, different official Twitter accounts out there, oh, this is going to be Trump's Benghazi. No, because this administration sends in an additional 750 troops, sends in an additional 100 Marines right away to reinforce our embassy and tells our enemies, and they believe it when he says it, if you mess with us, we will crush you. That is a difference between Trump and Obama and the Democrats on foreign policy. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, I think it's been handled very well. The Marines came in. We had some uh, great warriors come in and do a fantastic job. They were there instantaneously as soon as we heard. Uh, I use the word immediately. They came immediately, and uh, it's in great shape. As you know, this will not be a Benghazi. Benghazi should never have happened. This will never, ever be a Benghazi. But we have some of our greatest warriors there. They got in there very quickly. As soon as we saw there was a potential for problem, they got in, and there was no problem whatsoever. I also want to thank the Iraqi government. They really stepped up. I spoke to the prime minister today. I thanked him, uh, but they stepped up very nicely. So the protesters now, who are actually thugs, I mean, these were militia groups backed by Iran. Um, this, This was amazing. The New York Times, they, they've backed down. So this the embassy is not under the, is not under threat the way that it was, um, I, I think, because our enemies do understand that this administration will go after them, will make it hurt when this team in that works with this White House, that's a part of this uh, part of this senior rung of national security says you will rue the day that you cross the United States. I think it is believed by the bad guys It may not be believed by the New York Times editorial board. But that doesn't matter. The bad people understand that Trump means it. And as I've said before, we had some long discussions about how Tombstone is a great movie over uh, over Christmas dinner this year. Um, you know, you want Doc Holliday to be the one with the howitzer, the street howitzer sometimes. You, know, you want the bad guys to feel like the guy with the biggest weapon has a bit of an itchy trigger finger if they get out of line. And that's Trump. Um, that's, that's a difference. Uh, one of the important ways, I think, to separate him and the way that he approaches these issues uh, from his predecessor and from what would be the follow on administration of, of any Democrat that comes along. But they were calling this Benghazi before anything had even really trained. I mean, before we had even seen where this was going. Uh, Joy Reid, who is a prominent host on MSNBC, who is the one who wrote all the homophobic stuff 10 years ago and um, then said that people hacked in and she told the FBI that they hacked into her computer and or, you know, hacked into her account and wrote it for her. I mean, just just laughable stuff. She kept her job, by the way. That's now the Democrat. Oh, I've talked to the FBI. They're investigating. So this time machine plan that I've unfolded, uh, unveiled for all of you, maybe this is real. Uh, she tweeted out as Trump's Benghazi unfolds in Iraq, right as this was going on. And there's also a, an account called Vote Vets, which I assume is uh, you know, this is like some d- Democrat. Um, I'll check and see what they are. Some you know Democrat thing where, oh, yeah, vote, vote vets means vote Democrat. They tweeted out, uh, you're about to have more or less to Trump. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, you're about to have your own Benghazi in, in Iraq in response to Trump. You see, no, that that's not true, because people forget the real context for Benghazi. Um, people forget now, especially the leftists who have never learned the lessons of Benghazi, 
And let's be honest, just didn't really care. Obama was more important to them. Obama's reelection was more important than any accountability for Hillary Clinton. That's right. Secretary of State. While these uh, while the uh, facilities are getting burned down and people are being killed, our people in Benghazi. Uh, and Obama, there was no accountability for it, right? And this is why they lied about the video, because Obama's whole thing was, oh, they found they, you know, the CIA found where Bin Laden is, and after like months of dithering, Obama says, yeah, like send in our team, God bless our seals. They did what they do. They took out the bad guy. They took out Bin Laden, and then Obama's like, that's right, I'm the biggest, you know, biggest baddest foreign policy guy ever, and uh, that was the story, right? Bin Laden is dead. General Motors is alive. And then Benghazi happens right before the election on September 11th, no less. And the narrative was in danger. So Democrats circled the wagons to protect the narrative that Obama was somehow still really on top of the whole, you know, counterterrorism, anti-terrorism game and knew what he was doing. And, you know, just so just so smart on these issues, so much smarter than Bush was. That's tough to say when you have the first U.S. diplomat killed. I'm sorry, first U.S. ambassador killed since the Vietnam War, and you have three other brave Americans die along with him, and many others almost die were it not for uh, some fantastic patriots like uh, Tonto and, and others, and you know, Chris Peranto and the others. In the very excellent, I think, underrated movie, 13 Hours, by the way, which, uh, Producer Mark, have you seen that one? You just give me a nod. Okay, you have homework, Producer Mark. 13 Hours is an excellent movie. You will enjoy it, too. It's not a, it's not a boring movie at all. But those guys uh, kept that facility, the annex facility, from being overrun, and all the uh, agency personnel inside, perhaps, from being killed. That was while Obama was in charge, right? But so they, why would they jump immediately to calling it Trump's Benghazi? How could they make that leap? Well, because the narrative is more important to them even than concern over U.S. personnel and military lives. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. A little more on what happened in Iraq, and then we've got to move on to uh, the shooting in the church in Texas and what stopped it. Uh, all these anti-Semitic attacks in the New York area, some very troubling social justice first, your health and safety and property uh, later, you know, some other time. Criminal justice policies here in New York City that I know are also happening in other other parts of the country. We'll get into all of that um, and then some election update stuff. But but just first. I wanted to note that the New York Times, while you have the popular mobilization forces, what they call them, this is essentially, you know, a lot of these authoritarian Mideast regimes have this or support this in other countries. These are, I mean, I could speak to you for a long time, as you guys all remember, or I talk about it sometimes. I was on the CIA's Iraq desk for years. So this was something that we all, we, I was reading about and dealing with all day, all night. Um, and, you know, I was over in Iraq a couple of times dealing with this as well, dealing with these different issues. So you have uh, these groups like the like the Bader Corps. Um, uh, you have these different political entities. You also have these military entities that support political entities that are that are part of the factional fight. There's a sectarian fight between Sunni, Shia and Kurd who are different ethnicity, same religion as the Sunni and Shia. The Kurds are Sunni Muslim, but they are different ethnically and religious. I mean, uh, and um, uh, when it comes to their language, linguistically was the word I was looking for. Uh, but you have this fight continuing on right now, and it's not going to stop. So I'm not pretending that Trump fixed this, but there were airstrikes in response to the killing of the contractor, American contractor, and also some wounded uh, U.S. soldiers. And then this 
this popular mobilization force, which is uh, backed, well, which is also tied in with and backed by these Iranian militias like Kataib Hezbollah. And I know that we're getting into all these different, it's probably more detail than is, is really needed right now. But, and the New York Times, you know, they keep telling, they keep telling us they're not the enemy of the people, these news organizations. They keep claiming that, you know, there's nothing to see here when it comes to the dishonesty and the, uh, the dishonorable approach that they have to covering the news and to the way that they present these different facts and issues. Um, but I've, I've just got to say, I mean, first of all, they're lying to you about the legacy of the previous administration in Iraq. They're lying to you constantly about the reality of the uh, of the Iraq. I'm sorry, of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and then The New York Times tweets this out. Hundreds of Iraqi mourners tried to storm the United States embassy in Baghdad, shouting down, down USA in response to deadly American airstrikes this week that killed 25 fighters. I mean, that framing of this issue is absolutely stunning. These are not mourners. All right. These I mean, this is very similar to the Washington Post calling Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi an austere religious scholar. These are not mourners. These are mobilized thugs of the Iranian regime in Iraq. Now, look, there are separations between Iran and Shia in Iraq in what they want, but they work together on some things. And the Iranian malign influence here has been a problem stretching back now for, well, stretching back to the beginning of, of our invasion of Iraq. Um, but the New York Times takes this, it's just amazing. I mean, the New York Times takes this position that these are mourners who are storming. I mean, it's like they're setting it up so that there will be, if something really bad happens here, it's like, oh, this was just a, an uprising of people who were upset about U.S. airstrikes. Oh, I, I guess, you know, this is a policy failure in Iraq. No, this is our enemy, longtime enemy or enemies in Iraq going after the United States embassy there and the Trump administration saying, sorry, not going to happen. And if they had tried to overrun our Marines, I mean, there it would have been a uh, a bloodbath on the you know with the bad guys taking a majority of the losses hopefully all of them protesters storm u.s embassy in baghdad that's the headline the washington post had remember the the, the embassy is not it's now secure again the the protest quote protesters have been dispersed i mean this was a mob this was a terrorist aligned group that was engaged in an effort to overrun a United States diplomatic facility. And you can just tell, by the way, there was almost like cackling in the media, like a bunch of hyenas that, oh, this is going to look so bad for Trump. That's their first concern. Not that we have Marines who might have to defend themselves and fellow Americans with lethal force. Not that we could lose American diplomatic personnel, Marines and other military and other U.S. government officials in what is still a, a war zone. So that's how they put it. Secretary Pompeo Put it out this way when this attack happened. The attack was today was orchestrated by terrorists Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis and Qais al Qais al Khazali, and abetted by Iranian proxies Hadi al-Amari and Fala al-Fayed. All are pictured below outside our embassy. Those of you who served in Iraq, I, I, I remember these guys. I remember them. They've been bad guys all along. They have the blood of U.S. soldiers in their hands. And if it weren't for the for unfortunately the relatively weak hand we have now in directing Iraqi politics, 
uh, some of these guys should have been taken off the battlefield. And I mean kinetically. These are bad people. Uh, Kaisal Kazali has the blood of Americans on his hands. These are people that are our, our enemies. And they're all gathered outside an embassy. And they're overseeing this. And they know that they can't be touched right now because of the political realities of the Shia majority in Iraq. And our own news media is running propaganda for them and talking about how maybe this is going to be Trump's Benghazi. They keep telling us that they're not the enemy of the people. They keep claiming that that's an unfair thing to say about them. But I have to ask the question, at what point are they rooting for our enemies? And is it just too apparent for anyone to ignore? At what point does it become clear to even a casual observer that there are so many people in our own news media who would, if given their choice, see catastrophe unfold in Iraq, including the loss of U.S. lives, all right? Marines, families getting folded flags. That happening, and people in the media having to hide their glee at the prospect of what this would do to the Trump administration, how bad it would look for the Trump administration. Yeah, they're, they're not the enemies of the people. I mean, they're the enemies of those who are downrange and in harm's way. I'd like to know when it's too much. Calling it Trump's Benghazi before any sane person could think that has what happened here is just a step away from rooting for it to be Trump's Benghazi. And we all know that beneath this, behind this, they were rooting for it to be Trump's Benghazi. Ah, but here's the problem that they didn't anticipate or that they can't figure out. Trump isn't Obama. Trump isn't Hillary. The reason Benghazi happened was because of inept leadership, cable after cable asking for greater security, people downrange in harm's way saying, we need help. Where are you guys? Obama and Hillary were too busy getting flowery editorials written about them in the Washington Post, the New York Times, doing, you know, having their staff members do puff interviews on CNN, or they themselves doing puff interviews on CNN. Didn't have time to take care of one of the most important countries in terms of U.S. foreign policy at that time, because Hillary and co. decided they were going to overthrow the government there, so they made Libya important, whether we wanted it to be or not. They didn't have the time to really do their jobs. They didn't have the time to be honest with the American people afterwards, it seems, either. Susan Rice lied, said that it was about a video. Others in the administration lied. Candy Crowley, before we saw beyond any reasonable doubt that CNN was in fact a left-wing propaganda organization, Candy Crowley unfairly and wrongly intervened in a presidential election in favor of Obama on this very issue against then would-be President Mitt Romney, who I know Mitt is disappointing these days, but would have been better than Obama. Would have been better than Obama. What we see happening abroad and the way the media covers it is a reflection of the same approach they take to everything here in this country. They're hoping, we know this, some of them have said it, they're hoping that there will be a massive correction in the stock market, which will also be uh, part of a huge economic downturn, a recession, people out of work, people not able to pay their mortgages, people committing suicide because they're just in so much despair. I mean, that happens when there are recessions. You can see the numbers correspond to this um, you know, at a national level. They're hoping that all of that happens. They're rooting now against the country, not just in Iraq, but they're rooting against the country in general because things are going so well that they know they do not have a good shot of regaining power. And they prefer power to the good fortune and the prosperity and the freedom of the American people. 
if these two things are in conflict, our own news media and the Democratic Party would prefer that things go badly for you and me and the rest of the country. They would prefer that things get rough and things fall apart abroad, at home, you name it, as long as it means that they can regain power. And then they'll sort it all out and they'll justify this just as all socialists and communists and authoritarians and totalitarians throughout the last, really, now going on a couple hundred years, people forget the earliest socialist. Marx wasn't the first socialist. This was the, the socialist theories came after, really, the French Revolution, which I've talked to you about here on the show, and perhaps something we'll return to at some point. There were others that were espousing similar ideas, just Marx and Engels were the ones that really had it catch on. Um, but this is the reality for socialists and for communists. They can always look at whatever's going on in any country and say, Yo, but you don't under. I just said yo. Sorry, you don't. Yo, no, you don't understand. Things will be great in the future. So whatever you have to suffer now, we're taking you to a better future. That's always the, the excuse. And so they will root for our suffering today if it means they're in power tomorrow and they get to bring you into this utopia that they promised. But here's the problem, my friends: these people are incompetent, and at their core, they accept an anti-Americanism that is a disgrace. Because really what matters to them more than anything else is that they're the ones who get to call the shots about your life, what's going on in the world, in America, and that they get to control not just the levers of power, but the narrative around how things are going. So that's why whether you are interested in what's going on in Iraq politically and otherwise or not, I mean, at least now we know our Marines and our, our U.S. personnel are safe for the time being. But if you're interested in that or not, let's just understand something. The left is rooting for failure there, just like they are rooting for failure here. So you must remember that. That will be in the background for this entire 2020 election cycle. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Your basic problem with, with, with Trump is not the 17 ways that you think he resembles Mussolini, as you wrote. Your real problem with Donald Trump is that he's dismantling this, this universal American empire, which for you is the moral obligation for Americans to, 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 to run the world. That's the problem. And nationalism is an answer to that. I just wanted to play that little bit from a debate between uh, that was between Yoram Hazoni, who's written In Defense of Nationalism and has really now been credited with this should have been done a long time ago. But nationalism had taken on this inherently negative connotation because of national socialism and because of different nationalistic ideologies that uh, were odious and destructive and, and wrong. Uh, but that, you know, nationalism versus patriotism, it just became this differentiation of connotation. And instead, he's saying, look, countries should take to uh, attend to their own affairs. We believe this at the state level in this country. Right. This is why we our entire system is really built on. There are some things you really got to leave to the local. There are some things you leave to something a little a unit a little bigger than that. States and other countries, it would be a province or, you know, a, a you know, Canton or you know, whatever they call it. Um, a wilayat, if you're going to do it along the Ottoman system, boom, knowledge. Uh, but that there's a reason for that. Right. It's the same reason why uh, certain companies try to stay, you know, or military, better option. Well, you know, why do you have a, a fire squad and, then, you know, you've got a platoon and then you've got a company and you've got a battalion and you go down. The organization is different because once things get to a certain num number, a certain level, it becomes more unwieldy. It becomes less possible to operate the way that it should and to have the kind of cohesiveness ideologically or otherwise 
that is necessary. So nationalism can be a force for good, is, is Hazoni's argument. And he's debating, and I didn't get to play any of his, uh, Brett Stevens, who's a wildly overrated and very childish intellectual, um, wildly overrated intellectual, comma, very childish as well. He's the one who got so upset when he was called, I think, a bed bug and completely flipped out and like wanted somebody to get in all kinds of trouble for calling him a bed bug. I don't know. I, I've been called way worse. I've been called way worse things in bed bugs by people who really like me. Um, so Brett Stevens and and Hazoni are having this uh, having this discussion over the nature of the American role in the world, nationalism, imperialism, foreign policy. And I mean, here's a fundamental, and I, I just wanted to get to this. I know we've spent more time probably on foreign policy today than I, I intended, but remember that there are lessons. I mean, I worked Iraq and Afghanistan as a CIA officer, and there are lessons that we should all be able to draw at this point. We do not want to be in the business of running, building, defending other countries. We don't want to do that anymore, okay? We should be trying to get away from that as much as we possibly can. We should be trading with countries. We should have allies and friends, but we are not shouldering the burden of we're going to make your country a better place. Okay, we're, this is we're, we're not doing we should not be doing that anymore. And I think that that's important because the U.S. troops now getting sent to you got a few thousand that are getting sent. I believe 82nd Airborne has a quick reaction force. Um, that is being a ra rapid reaction for they have some other name for it. it's not technically a QRF, but it's something like that. Uh, they're sending into the Middle East. Uh, you have this military escalation all about Iran. We don't want a war with Iran. Iran is a small economy, a, a, a country that because of its leadership, not the Iranian people who are actually pretty great, uh, but because of its leadership and the ideology that runs the country, the military and security services there is is a is a backwards place and is regressive. Uh, it does have the ability to cause some problems for us in the Middle East, but we don't want to go to war with Iran. We should just tell the Iranians we're going to keep strangling your economy, maximum pressure campaign, exactly what Trump is doing. And you step out of line. We're, you know, if, if you slap us, we're going to punch you right in the nose, Iran. That's the approach. But we can't allow the punch of the nose to turn into, oh, no, now we're going to have a steel cage match, 12 rounds. We're going to try to really just get in there and and deal with this and make it a different country. Trump has the right instinct on this. The military industrial complex, which is a real thing, and the national security apparatus here and the people who think, and there are many of them, and they have privileged perches like Brett Stevens, people that have never seen what it's really like to be in a position where you are a combatant in a war zone. Uh, very easy to always talk about toppling governments and you know the flowering of Jeffersonian democracy throughout the Middle East and all this stuff when you don't see how that, can, how that will go so very, very wrong not just in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan, by the way. So I would hope that Trump has learned those lessons. I think he has, but he's going to have to fight. He's going to have to push back on his own people because I'm telling you, there are, there are those who are still in very powerful positions in the, in the national security apparatus who want a war with Iran. And if we, if we get into a war with Iran, we, I'm, I'm out. I mean, I'm, I'm done. I can't handle it. No, no more. No more defending the Republican Party. I got to figure out something else to do. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about this shooting that occurred in a church in White Settlement, uh, Texas, uh, just a few days ago. Um, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first of all, let, let's start with the the hero of this incident um there was the head of security jack wilson who was also a firearms instructor 
uh, former sheriff's deputy, I believe. Uh, this this gentleman, no doubt, saved many lives. Unfortunately, in this in this shooting, as quickly as it was uh, shut down by a good guy with a gun, there were two people who were who were shot and killed by this um, by this evildoer who went into a church uh, with a shotgun and clearly was trying to uh, kill as many people as possible. The shooter has been identified as, well, you know, I guess we will do the, we won't name the shooter because that's people prefer that we not name shooters these days. And I understand that, although the name is on the biggest websites, news websites in the world. So I don't know if that really does anything. Nonetheless, he had been known to go to this church in the past and demand money. They would give him food, but he would demand money. He was wearing a fake beard, a wig, a hat, and a long coat when he went into the West Freeway Church of Christ uh, in White Settlement. He killed Richard White and, and Anton Tony Wallace. So he killed two people. Um, and this just happened on, this whole thing just happened on Sunday during Sunday service. And this is a moment where you stop and you say, well, thank, thank heavens. I mean, it's tragic that there were two people killed during church. And there's also the trauma of all these individuals who were gathered to celebrate the Eucharist and, and Jesus and Christianity. And two people died there uh, and they saw it happen in front of this, their, their parishioners, and that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. So the, the damage here is considerable, but the damage also would have been much worse. You would have had a mass casualty event if somebody uh, had not stopped this fellow. And then you get into the political narrative right away, because here's the here's the big problem for uh, for libs and the occasional so-called conservative that the libs love to pretend is the one who's really speaking the truth about conservatism by bashing it all the time, including Second Amendment related issues. Some of you even know who I'm talking about without me naming them. This is the Jennifer Rubin routine or the Max Boot routine. The real conservatives hate conservatism. That's that's quite a thing that they pull off. And the media giving them all this attention and platforming, uh, platforming them so that they can spread that message of the real conservatives hate conservatism. We're supposed to not notice that that's happening. We're not supposed to care, apparently, that that's what's going on here. Uh, but here is the problem for the gun control advocates and for the liberals who are so very, very smug on firearms. Um, here's what we know. Uh, this shooter would have, we have every reason to believe this shooter would have continued his rampage against defenseless people, men, women, and children in a church and could have killed who knows how many, a dozen, two dozen before law enforcement was able to get to the scene. And because uh, he was just picking people at random to shoot, he had a shotgun, he had more rounds. And even if, the, even if the congregation had tried to overpower him, he would have been able to get off at least a few more shots, kill a few more people. Um, and that's assuming that the fight or flight response didn't result in most of the parishioners who were there to celebrate Jesus and and Christianity are not, you know, they're not prepared for they don't. Well, actually, in Texas, they were prepared for this. But generally speaking, the, the folks in a religious service are not thinking about this kind of thing. Um, more people would have died. But Texas allows individuals, not just security, individuals to carry firearms in church. You're allowed to carry a gun in church. And I got to tell you, as somebody who I remember I was at I was at midnight mass. Um, what was it uh, just over the well, obviously, right before Christmas. And a very, very crowded church here in New York City. Now, granted, we have a lot of law enforcement presence, a lot of NYPD here in New York, and their response time is fast. But uh, it wasn't St. Patrick's Cathedral, where they do have a lot of armed security, the biggest, most well-known church, Catholic church in New York City. Uh, but there were enough people gathered in there that all it would take is one person with ill intent 
get in there with a with a standard handgun and you, you could kill a, a dozen people before anybody would be able to do anything cause mass panic and hysteria and you can't have a I mean, no one's concealed carry in New York City unless they're law enforcement or they have very specific circumstances. In Texas, you can conceal carry. And that is what the argument turns into for people who say, oh, we shouldn't have armed personnel in classrooms. We shouldn't have armed personnel in church. Well, if a church is a gun-free zone, I mean, this is what liberals never seem to understand. The libs don't get this. If a church is a gun-free zone, and somebody wants to kill a lot of people in a church, in this case, because of the guys clearly disturbed, but also had some had some beef with the church. I mean, they weren't because the church wasn't his personal ATM machine. Um, if an individual wants to do harm to a church like this and they go in there knowing that unless there just happens to be somebody from the law enforcement community who is carrying in church, uh, that they will have free reign and that they're going against an unarmed civilian populace in an enclosed environment where they're not expecting it. The best place for an evil mass shooter to try and kill a lot of people is a gun-free zone. We know this. All the data supports this. It couldn't be more obvious at this point. But liberals, because they hate guns, and also guns are now a cultural signifier. There's a separation between those who support the Second Amendment and those who don't. If I know, for example, that you support the Second Amendment, it is overwhelmingly the case that you're also going to be more traditional in your views, you know, pro pro law enforcement, pro military, limited government. You know, you're going to have at least some, if not the full range of conservative tendencies. All right. It's not that doesn't mean that this is an absolute. But generally speaking, if you're somebody that supports the Second Amendment, supports concealed carry uh, or open carry, you know, whichever it may be, liberals also don't seem to understand that. You don't have to have everybody carrying in a church. You don't even have to have anybody carrying in a church. But if there is, in a place like Texas, the uh, law in place that allows for concealed carry, the bad guy can't know if this is going to if, if he's going to end up getting hit with a headshot from 40 feet away, which is exactly what Wilson pulled off here, which let's also note. I fired, you know, I can't you know, how many tens of thousands of rounds out of handguns over my life. And you're you're you know, lives are at risk. There's other there are civilians. Wilson said the only way that he could get the bad guy without endangering civilians was with a headshot. One shot, one kill headshot at 40 feet, took him out. That's not easy to do. I mean, that's that requires uh, a steady hand training and and real courage. Uh, so now the libs will say, oh, well, the argument turns out he's part of the security of the church. So he, he's not just a person who happens to carry, but they don't understand that even anybody in there being able to carry changes the calculation for a mass shooting like this. Means that a church all of a sudden becomes a less appealing place for a psychotic evil mass shooter. I don't know if this guy was a psycho or not. I'm guessing he was. He's obviously evil. Uh, to go in and, and kill a bunch of people. And that, you know, changing the calculation of the bad guy is something you want to do before anything happens. Um, now you get to the the debate because they this is the problem. This was a good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun in a church in Texas, which allows people to carry guns to church. This is for liberals in terms of narrative. This is their worst nightmare because this is exactly this is proof. They always tell us we need gun control. I mean, I had to deal with this on Fox recently. I had, you know, it was a very is a, a, a really a kind of, you know, the, the Democrat I was dealing with was a dumb conversation because she's just saying, well, we need more gun control. I said, well, the gun control laws we have already, 
this person was in violation of them and didn't stop them. So now you want to add more laws that wouldn't have stopped what happened. And what happened was already in violation of law. And the libs go, yes, because we don't want violence. Okay, yeah, nobody wants violence against innocents. This is a stupid position they take, but this is what they do. But this case, you know, what they do is when there's uh, an incident of violence and people are scared and people are upset, they say, we need more gun control because we care about saving lives. And those who believe in the Second Amendment, believe in the right to bear arms, say, well, hold on a second. What you are proposing would not have stopped the thing that we are talking about right now. So why are you using this as a data point for proposing something that's completely uh, that would be completely irrelevant to the circumstances of the shooting incident we're talking about? Oh, it's because they they have a, a an impulse. They have a desire for gun control, irrespective of how effective that gun control effort will be. Gun control has been turned into for libs. It's just a good thing. More gun control, always better. It's like government. More government, always better. Taxes, more taxes, always better. Is they, they've been conditioned to think this way. They've been brainwashed to think this way. So while they propose laws that wouldn't stop the very shooting that they are using as the imp- as the uh, the inciting incident for the conversation that we're the national conversation we're having. In this case, this is proof Texas gun laws worked. Texas gun laws worked. And they say, well, this guy. And so now they've got to f- figure this out somehow. Um, and so what they do is they claim that, well, the uh, security, fine, if you want to have arms, if you want to pay for armed security in a church, maybe that's okay. But we don't want random citizens concealed carrying. First of all, there's data that shows, and law enforcement doesn't like to hear this, there's data that shows that concealed carry permit holders in this country are more law-abiding than law enforcement. Yeah, that's that's a real thing. Um, and concealed carry holders also, in a lot of places, have to go through some safety course. But if you, you know, this is the, the problem. The libs that don't believe in guns, don't like guns, don't understand that anybody who's getting a concealed carry permit, who wants to go through that process and, and, wants, to, and, and wants to carry a firearm with them, those are people who overwhelmingly are gun people, like to shoot, know how to shoot, go to the range. They are Second Amendment people. Right. It's not they don't just go buy a piece and carry it around. I'm not saying no one does this, but very, very. I mean, everyone that I know and I know lots of concealed carry permit holders, they're good shots. They they understand basic tactics and they're good shots and they are very safety conscious and very law abiding. So then they say, oh, well, this this shooter, though, the uh, the shooter that got he got taken out by the uh, by Wilson and everyone's saying Wilson's a hero. And he is. I mean, that guy, I have. Man, I mean, this could have gone worse in so many ways. And to pull off one shot, headshot, 40 feet away in a church, crowded people screaming, two people just got killed right in front of him. Um, you know, all of his training came together. I mean, we we just salute and thank um, this this hero who managed to prevent so much worse. Jack Wilson, 71 years old, by the way, as well. It's another thing about concealed carry, you know. You know, you don't have to rely on the on the you know the the twenty five the forty five year old guys to storm the front of the church with their bare hands. Seventy one year old, the training is going to get it done, as this guy did. Um, so what the libs say though is, well, there are all these other people though who are in the church who were because you can see this. This was all on video, by the way, which is the other part of it that is so powerful because liberals usually like to construct the narrative in a very specific way so that it favors their political agenda, even when there's just facts to line up. They will do it so that it, it's more amenable to whatever they want your takeaway to be. So in this case, what you had was an actual video because they were live streaming the service. 
You can see it for yourself. I don't want to play it on air. It's disturbing because you hear the gunshots and you hear people screaming in terror. Um, but you can see exactly what transpired here. And you can see that this worked for the, this was textbook why Texas allows concealed carry in church. Textbook. And the good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. This is that. That's what happened here. And so the libs are freaking out because, you know, they have all this narrative about how, oh, that never happens. And everyone with a gun is going to be some kind of a Yahoo who's going to just be shooting and everything. And there are there are six other, I believe, uh, I think the number was six concealed carry permit holders who also drew their weapons and moved to the front of the room. And there was some editorial, I think it was, what, it was in USA Today by somebody who does not know anything about um Guns, firearms, Second Amendment. She wrote, Jack Wilson is exactly the type of person you want around with a gun because he's a firearms instructor. But we know nothing about at least six other parishioners who also appear to draw their handguns. And that's terrifying. This was USA Today, one of the biggest papers in the country. This is the editorial they, they publish. That's terrifying. I think what's a lot more terrifying is the prospect of being a parishioner sitting in those pews in White Settlement, Texas, and watching as person after person gets shot. Totally defenseless because you don't because libs don't want us to have guns. I mean, I'm in a gun free zone basically here in New York City, and it's appalling. Libs don't want us to have guns. Um, that just goes to show you, though, how how deep the really the second Second Amendment derangement goes is that you have people who think that their opinions on this are well informed, that their opinions should matter more than just yours because you know they're experts or something. Oh, this person's an expert in nothing, from what I understand. Uh, and they're terrified that there are other parishioners who had firearms. Guess what? There could have been multiple shooters in that church. Or what happens if Jack Wilson misses and that shooter, who, by the way, had a shotgun, which up close, you know, I'd probably take the shotgun over whatever Wilson uh, was carrying as a sidearm. I mean, if you're just talking about going firepower to firepower here, what if Wilson had missed with that first shot and the shooter had got him? OK, you had armed security. You had one, which is a lot more than basically, you know, most churches in the country are going to have. But and what if, by the way, what if everyone knows who that security officer is? Who do you think the first person is that the shotgun wielding maniac is going to go after when he wants to do a mass shooting in a church? Oh, just go up to the one, you know, the one armed officer, or the one armed, you know, rent a cop or the one armed parishioner that everyone knows is the security guy. And that's guess what? He's done. You've already started your mass shooting. And now you got free reign because you're in a gun free zone again. No, instead, six parishioners were there. And that's just a reminder that, you know, this church was ready. These parishioners were ready. They took their safety in their own hands. By the way, none of them panic fired. None of them, uh, you know, lit, lit off a couple of rounds just because they were terrified. No, they drew their weapons. They moved to the front of the church. They helped secure the area. There could have been a there. Also, there could have been a second shooter. So not only do you have the possibility that if Wilson gets into a gun battle, you know, you don't want just one guy against one guy. And then what happens if the bad guy wins that? Fortunately, Wilson certainly was uh, more than up to this challenge. But having the additional parishioners there with guns, everyone should feel safer as a result of that. I would feel safer. I feel safer knowing that the people that I go to church with every Sunday, I would feel safer knowing that some of them were concealed carrying next to me. Why, why wouldn't I? I mean, and, and the people who tend to a lot of the people who tend to conceal carry, you know, the people who. Um, our former military themselves, people who really, you know, care about public safety, care about their own safety, take it into their own hands. These are the people you want to have guns. Liberals hated this situation because you got to see in real time that our argument makes sense and their argument is silly and dangerous and will result in more people getting killed. 
our argument, legal concealed carry permit holders should be able to bring guns into church and that states should not just ban concealed carry for all law-abiding citizens because they don't like guns, because guns are bad. That is silly. It is foolish. It is wrong, and it is dangerous. Our argument is better than theirs. That's what this showed us, and that's why they're scrambling to find some way to explain this incident so that it can fall within the narrative that they're going to tell people. But one of the problems you deal with whenever you got libs, they never accept that they're wrong. Doesn't matter what the evidence is, doesn't matter what the reality of the situation turns out to be. So they won't change their tune on this, but just re remember this. When we come on this show, when I talk to you about these issues of the Second Amendment and self-defense, the right to bear arms, we're right and they're wrong. And that's not gonna change. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team Buck, great to have you back in 2020. I'm so excited for the year ahead that we are going to have, and I appreciate all of you who were able to listen to our birthday special, which we released on December 27th, and just some stories that I think you might find kind of amusing. So if you haven't a chance to listen to that one yet, that's an evergreen soon. That's that's media speak for you. You can listen to that one anytime you want, um, and that will stay, it'll stay as uh, good content for you, and it's my just chance to speak to all of you as as buck to all of you i don't know why i just went third person there but i have a cold so you got to give me a little bit of a little bit of leeway today producer mark and i are both man we are we're sniffling it here we're trying to decide which one of us is sicker i'm pretty sure it's me but you know mark mark is i'm sure not not the least bit grouchy when he has a cold no i'm sure mrs mark has no problem keeping you oh i know i'm not uh pain in the butt when yes. I'm sick at all. No, no, never, never. By the way, I hope you mm. told some people for my birthday and for New Year's about downloading the Buck Sexton show on the iHeart app or on Apple Podcasts, because that is what I asked for Christmas and New Year's and my birthday. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeart radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. See, this is a horrible thing to have to say over the holidays, um, but anti-Semitism is clearly on the rise, particularly in the New York area where I'm coming to now with this show, um, and it's it's difficult to keep track now. There have been so many anti-Semitic attacks, attacks against our Jewish brothers and sisters here in in New York City, uh, that it's tough to keep it's tough to keep them separate in your head when they say, oh, this attack, that attack, this prosecutor says, that prosecutor says about the attack. There's so many of them that. You have to really focus in on the details. The most horrific one was at a Hanukkah party at a rabbi's home in New York City, which was called by some uh, a domestic terrorist act. And you had five people who were stabbed. Um, Governor Cuomo has called this an act of uh, domestic terrorism. The... Uh, Victims were taken to two hospitals. Uh, I believe one was in serious condition. This guy went in with a large knife and he attacked people at a Hanukkah party. He, I mean, he did seek them out. I mean, this was it's certainly an, an act of, of hate. It's being treated as a hate crime. Um, there have been some other attacks as well here in New York City. Uh, you have. So that was the most the most prominent one. Uh, there have been some others, though, where people are being just attacked on the street who are visibly uh, Orthodox Jewish, uh, Hasidim, I believe, in some cases. There's surveillance video also showing some of, of these different attacks. And so the Jewish community in New York right now is understandably very concerned. Um, there's a sense here that 
for whatever reason, right now there is a surge in these attacks. Perhaps people who already have anti-Semitism in their heart and are, are a bit deranged see this as a moment to, because, you know, there, there's a momentum to fear. There's a momentum to terror. When you can string together a series of attacks against a group, it adds to the sense of, of anxiety, the sense of a, a lack of safety on the streets of, of New York. Um, there's this individual who's charged in the attack again at the at the Hanukkah party. There's also a woman who was involved in an attack on uh, Jewish individuals on the street who was uh, not not her first time that she had done this kind of thing. Um, and I'm going to get into the change in bail here in New York City, which has resulted, I think, in some of what has been going on here. Some of, rather some of why these dangerous individuals um, were in a position to continue this this spree of, of attacks. Um, but this is what's so interesting from the from the political perspective on this. And by the way, I'm, I'm very heartened. We we're just talking about firearms. There were some uh, members of the Jewish community here in the New York area, New York suburbs, not near New York City, who were open carrying rifles outside of their service. And I'm, and I'm sad that it, it has come to this, but I'm also completely supportive of anyone, members of the Jewish community, certainly included in this, who wants to take their safety into their own hands more. Um, you know, it, it would be. As far as I'm concerned, it's not just that we should have concealed carry as an option in church. Of course, we should have concealed carry as an option in synagogues, too, at, at, at temple. People should be able to. Um, they should be able to make that choice. Um, you know, you have a new surveillance. By the way, this is what I was trying to find before. There's a surveillance video from December 23rd. A 22-year-old Hasidic Jewish man defending himself with a 24-year-old woman punching him in the neck. And the attacker allegedly yelled anti-Semitic slurs while doing it. And uh, it's being investigated as a hate crime. Two women were arrested in connection with the incident, and one of them has been charged with the assault. Uh, there's also another anti-Semitic attack in Brooklyn. There's a group of people who struck a 23-year-old Hasidic man over the head with a chair and punched him in the face. Police believe the group was connected to an attack on a 56-year-old Hasidic man in the same neighborhood, which security cameras captured earlier that day. I mean, there's there's a lot of these attacks that are happening in the New York City area. Why are we having a national conversation on anti-Semitism right now? I mean, these are news reports, and as we know, violent criminal acts do tend to get news coverage. But why is the narrative so different here? I saw um, fake, fake honest newsman Jake Tapper, fake Tapper. Ask uh, ask somebody, you know, would these attacks be different if the I mean, would they be treated differently by the media? He asked, I think, a Democrat in Congress, this or you know, some Democrat, uh, if if the attackers were white nationalists. Of course, this is like the most obvious thing in the world. If these were white nationalists attacking members of the Jewish community. I remember, we've been told there's this huge surge because of Trump and in white nationalist violence and white nationalist attacks. Um, you know, we've been told this all along. And yet, what's the problem for just just like the problem for the liberal narrative in Texas is that a good guy with a gun stopped a bad guy with a gun. We saw it on video. Couldn't be more obvious. What we say will work. We have perfect proof of it. What they say will work makes no sense when it comes to gun control. Uh, they claim that white nationalism is on the rise, is the primary terrorist threat in this country, and we should all be deeply, deeply concerned about it. That's what they say to us. 
Meanwhile, I believe without exception, I could be wrong, um, but without exception, every single one of these anti-Semitic attacks, including a guy busting into a busting into a home with a machete and hacking at people during a Hanukkah service because they're Jewish. Also, prosecutors say that he searched on Google, why did Hitler hate the Jews before the attack? So I think we know this guy's about as anti-Semitic as you're going to find. The problem for the liberal media right now is that all the attackers are African-American. Oh, that's... Well, what do they make of that? I mean, we're supposed to be afraid of the big surge of white nationalists because of Trump. That's what they always tell us. No, but the attackers, uh, one of them, a female attacker is black. The attacker at the Hanukkah ceremony, black. Um, all, all the attackers in these incidents are black. Every single one of them. And you, you got a whole number, a whole slew of these attacks, without exception. They're all, they're all black. And so now you look at this and you say, well, hold on a second. We've been told that there's... We all agree that you know that you need to stamp out anti-Semitism, I and mean, all decent people understand that we need to um, protect our Jewish brothers and sisters, as you would protect anybody in this country uh, from violence and from from harm uh, of this kind. But we also are always being told that there's this surge in white nationalism because of Trump, and that that's where the real that's where the real anti-Semitism is. And yet, in this instance, there is a a strange, muted nature, a, 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 a sense that this is not as important a story because all the attackers are are black. I'm I don't know what they're if they have if they vote or what their politics are. I, I'm going to guess that none of these attackers are have ever been you know photographed wearing a MAGA hat and are Trump supporters. I'm just going to put that out. I'm, I'm going to guess. I mean, just by the numbers, it's likely that they are not Trump supporters based on the reality of uh, demographic and voting patterns here in New York City. I think that's a fair guess. So what are we supposed to take from this? Why do you have so many of these horrific incidents and you have African-American attackers of Jewish people in New York City? I mean, trying to hack them to death with machetes because they hate Jews. We're always told that hatred of another race, another ethnicity is really only something that white people have. This is what we're. This is the liberal narrative on this, that the isms, racism, anti-Semitism. This is a white against other people thing. It's not possible for other marginalized groups. They will say, right? Because that's the terminology. Marginalized groups. It's not possible for them to be racist, because they're uh, not in power the same way. This is this is the rot, the intellectual, psychological, emotional rot of intersectionality on display. The left inherently believes that black violence, anti-Semitic violence like this against the Jewish community is less of a concern because they believe the black community is oppressed and therefore because white people are the oppressors in society, that's always going to be a much bigger story to them, a much bigger, because they bring this narrative focus to these events. This is the backdrop. This is the context that they will always put it in. And there are even some news reports. I mean, you see some of these stories and they will tell you that, uh, you know, there's rising tensions between the Hasidic and, you know, black community in Brooklyn. I saw one of these, I think it was a CBS piece or an NBC piece. I forget which one on, you know, and, and how, uh, you know, there are, um, 
you know, land, like you know, Jewish landlords and the and tension with the black community. And there, there's always this additional context they give when there are attacks by members of the black community in New York City against uh, against members of the Jewish community. And this goes, I mean, you can see this with, you know, Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton's always gotten a pass for inciting a riot that killed the Jewish man. I mean, there's and, and saying horrific anti-Semitic things. He's got his own TV show, folks. OK, on MSNBC. No, no one ever made him. I mean, Al Sharpton, it just tells you really everything you know about the Democratic Party today. But there's this, this enormous double standard in, in play. And we see it's because of intersectionality, because they always view any act committed by any white person, particularly if it's a white Republican, that is anti-Semitic in nature, is useful to the left-wing narrative because they will tie it to Trump even if the person has never voted and doesn't even care about Trump, right? It's a, a, a white person who attacks a Jewish, you know, a white non-Jew, obviously, who attacks a Jewish person is a result of Trump's anti-Semitism. That is, that is the narrative. That is what they are pushed, that's the propaganda the news media is pushing at you. A black person, or in this case, several black people, different black people in different incidents, who attack members of the Jewish community, try to kill them, try to hack them to death in their own homes over the over a high Jewish holiday. Um, that's just, you know, the act of a, of a bad, deranged person. And, you know, we got to do more to make sure that doesn't happen again. Maybe if we just get rid of guns, that'll be, you know, all that's needed or something. I mean, that, that's what they that's what they come up with. So when I talk to you about narrative and the propaganda from the left, I mean, this is a perfect a perfect example of it. We're not having some national conversation about hatred from within minority, you know, racial minority communities of the religious minority uh, Jewish community. We don't talk about that. Uh, we don't talk about whether there's perhaps a little bit too much of a, oh, oh what are we, like, like Louis Farrakhan, for example, a prominent, prominent uh, black preacher, able to say horrifically anti-Semitic things about, about uh, Jews. And, you know, remember that? He took that photo with Barack Obama. I mean, there's these, which the photographer hid, and there are these Huge double standards at play all the time. You cannot trust the media. They're not honest. They lie to you. This is yet another example of that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Oh, speaking of media propaganda, this was a great one. This was really one of my one of my favorite little moments uh, on, on Twitter in a while where you see that they're willing to just that there's a willingness to lie on the left. There's a willingness to be uh, completely disingenuous and dishonest about things that you really can't ignore. Uh, and again, sorry for my voice today, guys. If I sound like I'm, you know, if I, if I sound like I'm sick, it's because I am. Uh, but here's what we got. Um, there's this story that Counties, Ezra Klein, who's supposed to be an intellectual on the left, he's a little propagandist. He has, there's no intellectual honesty with this guy whatsoever. I've, everything I've ever seen him put out there is just classic. But he kind of looks like a little smart nerd. And so the left is like, oh, he must be really smart. It's like, no, false. Um, but they've elevated this guy just because I, I can't even really understand. Well, I, I do understand because he looks like what a Brooklyn hipster thinks an intellectual is supposed to look like because he's a Brooklyn hipster. Uh, but he put this out. We found that counties that had hosted a 2016 Trump campaign rally saw a 226% increase in reported hate crimes over comparable counties that did not host such a rally. Wow, that's a really, that's a really powerful statistic, isn't it? Counties 
after this is what they're telling you after they hosted a Trump rally, a 226 percent increase in hate crimes in that county. Wow. Uh, There must be a lot of hate that happens as a result of Trump rallies. Oh, hold on a second. Ezra Klein of the Washington Post here, uh, or Ezra Klein citing the Washington Post. Where did they get this methodology? He just put this tweet out, by the way, on New Year's Eve day. Well, where did they get this methodology of the 226% increase in reported hate crimes? Oh, you know what they did, folks? They just looked at hate crimes in places, reported hate crimes in places where Trump had a rally versus all other counties. Guess what? They made no effort whatsoever to control for population differential. So when Trump has a rally in a county that has a population of two or three million people, they then said, and they compared it to all other counties, and they said, oh, there's, look, there's this huge spike in hate crimes compared to a county that might have 50,000 people. I mean, this is... It's not even malpractice of statistics. It's just dishonest. I mean, it's just propaganda. This is lies. This is lies. And it's being, they keep pushing this. And they, they've known this is not true for months. This came out initially, I think, over the summer. Even better, when they did the same thing for rallies in 2016 in Hillary Clinton counties, guess what? The reported hate crimes were even higher in terms of their increase than the Trump rallies in those counties. Because this is a crap methodology. It's dishonest on purpose, but it allows you to come up with this headline. And this is the way that people who don't care about being fair and honest and ethical in their work can, you know, get a lot of clicks and do whatever they want to do. I mean, this would be like saying, well, you know, after, you know, Beto O'Rourke campaigned in a, in a bunch of major American cities, and those cities saw a huge spike relative to. Uh, to other cities of in violence, just call it violence overall, after Beto was there. And all they were doing was looking at big cities and how many people are killed in big cities versus little tiny cities and how many people are killed in tiny cities. They say, see, big spike after Beto spoke there. I mean, a, a, a third grader can figure this out. No offense to the third graders listening to this show. You guys are very smart and you would have figured it out way better than the Washington Post. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, a, a little kid would know that this is a garbage way to gauge this. Ezra Klein, so-called, so-called left-wing intellectual. I mean, this guy, oh, he's so dishonest. Oh, he's so, you know, the whole thing. But, you know, he looks the part, so, kind of talks fast, talks like somebody who's intellectual, kind of does one of these things where he's kind of, yeah, so I've got, I've got smart guy glasses and I talk really fast and I look like a nerd, so no, that doesn't make you smart. And it certainly doesn't make you ethical or wise. The fact that he's still putting this out just goes to show you, here's a guy that's, oh, by the way, had tremendous access to the Obama administration, used to have dinners with Obama, the left loved this guy for all eight years of Obama. And he runs Vox. He's the founder of Vox.com, which is the most annoying beta male left-wing site in existence. And yet, here he is, just spreading a a lie that, I mean, I I would challenge, I would love to sit down and debate this issue with him. He'd get absolutely crushed. But these guys never debate anywhere anymore because they're just they're just peddling in in dishonesty. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Me llamo Julian Castro. I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. The very fact that I can say that tonight shows the progress that we have made in this country. Like many of you, I know the promise of America. Julian Castro may know the promise of America, but he no longer knows what it's like to be a candidate for president of the United States. 
Julian Castro's candidacy is over as of today. Point zero 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 one percent of the electorate is weeping or maybe mildly disappointed. I don't know. I don't know how we even describe it. I'm a little sad because Castro had the single greatest Democrat line of the entire presidential uh, primary so far on the left, which was that we needed to make sure that we had, and I might be paraphrasing here a little bit, but it was, or I am paraphrasing, but I I think I'm getting this more or less right in the substance. need to make sure that we have taxpayer-funded abortion for illegal alien transgender individuals. Okay. I mean, I don't, for those of you listening, if that's not a priority for you in terms of policy, I don't know what is. And people were like, wait, what? I mean, they were, they're trying to follow this over the course of the uh, over the course of the debate. What was that exactly that he said? But nonetheless, Castro's campaign is is done for another one of these candidates that the media really was excited. I mean, they weren't Kamala level excited about his campaign, but they were they were pushing it and they weren't Beto uh, behind him, you know, they were Beto was a, a construct of the media. I mean, a construct of the media and wealthy Democrat elites who decided that Beto O'Rourke was somebody that you had to hear from for reasons that are still, um, you know, still a, a mystery. I think to many of us who were really paying attention to this. By the way, is Michael? Wait a second, is Michael Bennett still in the race, producer Mark? Do we know? No, he's not. Right? Okay, because we had okay. Because I was just like, wait a second. He's out the year. He's the guy, okay, who uh, who has this to say about Trump's foreign policy. He just decided to weigh on this over the weekend with the Iraq stuff going on. Play one. Donald Trump has proven over and over again uh, that he is the weakest foreign policy president of our lifetime, or my lifetime anyway, and um, and we're seeing this play out in Iran, where basically since day one he's played into the hands of the hardliners in Iran when he ripped away the Iran deal without any replacement, stepped back from uh, a negotiated agreement that our uh, allies had supported, the rest of the world had supported, and had nothing to p- replace it with. And then he's been provocative and provocative, and, and the Iranian regime is odious and malevolent and terrible, but we all know that. And so why would we want to make matters worse by stoking the, the, the hardliners' position in Iran? It's completely inexplicable, except by the president's complete lack of a coherent strategy and, I think, the innate weakness of his foreign policy, which we've seen not just in the Middle East, but uh, in, in, with respect to Russia and China and certainly North Korea. Everything he said was wrong. <laughs> That's a great thing about Democrats. They can. I just want to correct myself. He is in the race. Yeah. He still I is. He has thank a, you. I just saw a headline. He hopes to finish top three in New Hampshire. There we go. Yeah. He's, I knew he was still in the race. All right. I'll thank Producer Mark for keeping. I mean, there's so honest. many candidates. How no, can of course, we keep track? But that's why. I mean, so I wanted to get in some of these. I thought he was. That's why we asked for mm, President Trump. By the way, my Bennett impression is awesome, but I, I'm with my cold. I can't really do it right now. Otherwise, I would. I would Donald Trump's proven over and over again. He's the weakest. I can't really do it right now because, you know, my throat's all swollen up and stuff. Um, everything you said there was wrong. And by the way, can we just step back for a second and look at how he says that Trump is the weakest foreign policy president. He's stronger than Obama was. Um, made less, I think, errors, unforced errors in particular, than Bush did. And you're going to say that when Jimmy Carter, I mean, Bennett was alive when Jimmy Carter was president. Really? Weakest foreign policy president is Donald Trump. This is absurd. This is stupid. It's not even it's just it's not a defensible thing to say for an intelligent person. It's a dumb thing to say. But Bennett's still in the race, man. He's still in it. 
Um, so that was you got another one in in the mix. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, she was out. Uh, she was out doing some surfing in New Hampshire, which I got to tell you, surfing this time of year is generally not what I would think would be a a favorite activity. Uh, surfing is something that I've never. Have you ever surfed? I've never have you ever tried. You boogie board any of that stuff? When I was a child, I tried a boogie board, but it's not for me. I'm not much of a swimmer. I would love to surf, but I would need time to actually get reasonably good at it, I think, before I could get excited about doing it at all. It looks cool, though. And I love the movie Point Break. Utah, give me two. So that's all you really need to know. Um, but uh, Tulsi Gabbard has pointed out. I'm just just kind of give you a little bit of update on the field because we are. Hold on. Let me give you the the overview because I know we're, it's our first day back here. It is 32 days until the Iowa caucuses, 40 days until the New Hampshire primary, and 306 days to the 2020 election. 32 days, basically a month before Iowa caucuses, folks. And this is going to be honest. We're going to be in the midst of a very interesting primary. And nobody knows. I don't care what you say. Nobody knows who the Democratic primary winner is going to be. Although Comrade Sanders doing better than people would have expected at this point, I think. But we'll, we'll get into that. As is Judge, there's a particular kind of smug liberal for whom Judge is like the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, they think Judge is just fantastic. Oh, but, but anyway, back to uh, Tulsi, who, as you know, of the Democrats, of the Democrats that I think are terrible, she's the least terrible. Um, and then probably Yang would be number two behind her for least terrible of terrible candidates. And uh, here is what she says about... The House impeachment, which we're going to be spending a lot of time in the weeks ahead talking about, too, by the way, because now we've got the Senate component of this. But here's what she said. Play 15. In 2020, we will have a new president in the White House. But the real question is, how many of you do not want that to be Donald Trump? I definitely don't. But unfortunately, the House impeachment of the president has greatly increased the likelihood that Donald Trump will remain the president for the next five years. Now, first, we all know that Trump is not going to be found guilty and removed from office by the U.S. Senate. It's not going to happen. Second, the impeachment, in my view, will actually increase his support amongst voters, and it's going to make him harder to defeat. Furthermore, the House impeachment has increased the likelihood that Republicans will take over the House of Representatives. So I'm really concerned that because of this House impeachment, we will end up not only with Donald Trump as president from 2020 to 2024, we'll actually end up with a Republican-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House. This is going to be a disaster for our country. I mean, she's wrong about it being a disaster. It'll be awesome. But she's right that the impeachment thing is going to back is backfiring. The Democrats, they, they look, they've gone crazy. So they're making crazy people decisions. The Democratic Party has been hijacked by the loons among the Democrats. They're really, they're socialists now. I mean, it's a socialist party. They just won't call themselves that. The Democrats are now they're embracing socialist policies really across the board. Um, on every major policy issue, they're they're trending toward or openly advocating for socialism. But she's right. She's right uh, that this is not looking good. And that's why you've had a whole host of very interesting Democrat theories floated out there for like what they're going to do now because they don't have the votes in the Senate. They know they don't have the votes in the Senate. So what are they going to do? Lawrence Tribe, who I I think is he's a, a professor at Harvard Law School and he serves a very important purpose. And that purpose 
is to remind people that Harvard Law School is not nearly as impressive as they've been led to believe it is, that there are morons who are professors at Harvard Law School. They're people that have terrible judgment, no wisdom, no honesty, no ability to make critical decisions that are good. And Lawrence Tribe is, is a fantastic example of all of those shortcomings. This is a very celebrated professor at, at Harvard Law School. I thought, I thought people at Harvard Law Oh, they, oh Elizabeth Warren is a professor at Harvard Law School, too, folks. Just remember that. It's ridiculous. These places are just finishing schools now for, for left-wing Democrats, unfortunately. Uh, the conservatives who come out of them just want to like, go into private life and don't you know, tend to think that they should be running everything and changing the country. Yeah, there's some conservatives, I guess, who go to these places and go into public life. But anyway, Lawrence Tribe tweeted out this. When the chief justice administers the oath of impartiality to a senator who has said he will not be impartial... He will need to decide what his own oath demands and whether he has jurisdiction to rule on a motion to recuse that senator for cause. Put plainly, here you have Lawrence Tribe telling us or speaking publicly about how, you know, he would like to see a situation where Justice Roberts, who's the person as the chief justice of the Supreme Court who would who would preside over this trial of Trump in the Senate, he wants to know whether a whether the chief justice will just decide to start t- pulling senators off the you know saying nope you don't get to vote you're you're out of this again changing I mean just they'll change any rule folks they will undermine any institution there's nothing safe from these crazy libs they will they will make any argument if they think they can get their way this is absurd. I mean, I talked to you about how they stacked the deck in the House with the procedural games that Adam Schiff was playing. And now, even though they don't have the votes, they think there should be a lot. They think they should be allowed to stack the deck in the Senate. This is nuts. And the amount of backtracking from what we've already seen, the amount of, oh, uh, we said this about producing evidence or witnesses in the House. But now we got to change things because the Senate is a different story. Right. This is why that that quote from. Children of Dune by Frank Herbert is, I I think it's so important. It's one of the most profound quotes I can think of these days to explain Democrats, right? When I am weak, I ask for, uh, I ask for freedom because it is according to your rules. When I ask for, or when I am strong, I demand obedience because it is according to my rules. That's roughly what he says. That's what Democrats do. When Democrats have the votes, the votes are the votes. We get our way. When Democrats don't have the votes, no, we should have like more people added into this body or, oh, no, it doesn't have the jurisdiction or, oh, no, it's, you know, tainted from the beginning. The process isn't fair. They do this every time. They're like they're like spoiled children. You know, I, I remember, you know, I remember when I used to play dodgeball, which I feel like you can't you're not allowed to play anymore in schools. We played so much dodgeball when I was growing up. and It was good. It was very you know, it was very Darwin. It was very like you didn't want to be the slow kid in the class because you were going to get pummeled. Um, so, you know, Buck with his giant head that was difficult to maneuver and his swoop of hair, which is not aerodynamic, would have to move around very quickly to try to avoid getting getting just pasted with these dodgeballs. Um, but I just remember how, <laughs> uh, you know, how I completely forgot how producer Mark, I was going to tie this into what we're talking about. And that actually just happened to me live on air. I got I got so I actually transported myself back in time. To when I was playing dodgeball. Sure. And, you know. I should get a dodgeball to pummel you with whenever you do this. Correct. Oh, no, now I remember because producer Mark um, scared me by threatening to pummel me. Perfect. Let that be on the record. Um, I, I, 
remember that we would play either when you would get to a certain number of points or it was for time. And there were always kids. We'd agree, okay, guys, we're going to put this game's going to be 10 minutes for dodgeball, you know, and whoever's left on the field after 10 minutes, that's the side, whoever's more people, that's the side who wins. Or it's, oh, whoever gets to, you know, 10 people out first wins or whatever. And there were always kids who complained that it wasn't the way that they wanted it to be, right? There were always kids who complained the rules of the game when they lost were unfair. But when they win, the rules are the rules. This is what Democrats do. They're like a bunch of little spoiled grammar school kids. Here's another example. This is the Washington Post. Certainly the House's demand that the Senate call these witnesses is undercut to some extent by its own failure to persist in trying to compel their testimony, hoping to avoid getting bogged down in an extended court fight with the administration. Yet the question of whether the Senate should exercise its subpoena power to obtain relevant testimony is a separate issue politically, legally, and morally. A Senate leader sincerely interested in operating as head of an independent branch of government would have left no doubt that he intended to do so. Mr. McConnell has done the opposite, giving rise to Pelosi's very legitimate concerns. Yeah, very legitimate. My friends, here's the Washington Post, the Bezos-owned lib propaganda outlet known as the Washington Post, being very uh, clear about double standard. They're saying, no, no, this is a double standard. There's a standard and there are two of them. It is a double standard. The House didn't want to deal with the court fights and all this other stuff. So they just didn't they didn't try to even get witness testimony in this impeachment farce. But the Senate, the Senate not getting that witness testimony, that's just too much because the Senate is different because they say so. Who could defend this? Who, who could think that this is a good faith understanding of how these two bodies are supposed to work? If the testimony wasn't enough to get the articles of impeachment passed by the House of Representatives. Remember, still haven't been transmitted to the Senate by Pelosi. I got that bet with my buddy Jesse Kelly. We'll see, you know, who's right and who owes who a stake on this one. But they just they just changed the rules in real time. They don't care. You know, the House, the House, they had the votes, so they pushed it through. The Senate, they don't have the votes, so they're going to raise process complaints. They're going to say that it's unfair, it's unserious, or they're going to try to change the process in real time to benefit them. Absurd. Absurd. We should all see it as such. Um, Anyway, I I mean, I I just, this is going to, it's going to get uglier. It's going to get worse with this whole thing because Democrats, they've made a mistake here. This is an error. I think that's becoming quite clear to anybody who is an honest observer of this impeachment debacle. Uh, But they won't admit that. So they're just going to keep kind of coming along with new ways to complain and whine and say that Trump is basically Hitler and all this other crazy stuff. Uh, And they never, they never, ever, ever learn their lesson. They just don't. So Tulsi Gabbard is right. Impeachment's not working out for Democrats. And she wasn't, she voted present, I think. So she wouldn't vote for it. And that's why Democrats hate her because she's just not crazy enough. She's not full of enough anti-Trump and anti-Trump supporter rage for them. And she, you know, gets up on a surfboard and it's kind of cool. So there you go. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Oh, I almost forgot. Then they have the the centrist Democrat, if you will, the guy who's still leading in the polls despite everything, despite his son's cronyism and, you know, Biden's just obvious ineptitude and everything else. Here is uh, 
Joe Biden on the campaign trail. Now, I'm gonna, I might have to explain what was said to him, but you can hear his response pretty clearly. Remember, Joe Biden is the reasonable, rational Democrat. Please play um, well, whatever, whatever that Joe Biden being crazy clip is, Mark. I can't even find it right now. No, the one where he says we're all going to die. We're all going to die. You have to be specific. There's a lot of crazy I know, this, I know that's my fault. That's crazy Biden. 17. It's clip 17. There you go. Ask me about climate change, man. It's the number one issue. If we don't stop using fossil fuels, we're all dead. Did you hear what was said there? This is at a, at a town hall thing. You know, Biden, this guy says, you know, if, if we don't, it sounded like he had a British accent to me. I couldn't really tell. Um, he says, if we don't stop using fossil fuels, and Biden says, we're all dead. That's the moderate. That's the business as usual. Go back to a time of pre-Trump decency and all this other stuff. That's the moderate. We're all dead, folks. If we don't stop using fossil fuels. It would be hard to think of a crazier, dumber, uh, more obtuse statement. It really would. You'd have to you'd have to struggle to come up with a way to sound like more of a lunatic than claiming that we are all dead unless we stop using fossil fuels. You know what the truth is? If we stop using fossil fuels too quickly, people will die. That's reality. We won't be able to meet our energy needs. We will have people that are unable to get food and unable. I mean, just you look at the. Uh, the way that fossil fuels drive the global economy. And if you try to do any, if you do a crash course away from fossil fuels, then people will die. So their lunacy comes at a cost, too. It's not just that they're crazy. But there you have Joe Biden, the big hope of the Democrats, letting you know that we're all going to die. And if we don't stop using fossil fuels, which is insane. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our campaign is about two fundamental issues. Number one, the need to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of our country. And no matter what your political views are, and I know that not everybody in Iowa or America agrees with everything that I stand for, we want a president that when you you and your kids are watching television, that you're not embarrassed by what you see on the screen. This is uh, something that leftists will not give up on, like Comrade Sanders here, which I think is what we have to call him from now on. And maybe it is time to bring back Commie Bear, by the way, because he could do special commentary on, on the policy plans of Comrade Sanders. Um, there's this, oh, but what will you tell your children? Four-year-olds don't care what the president says. They don't see what the president says. It doesn't matter. No one cares. Doesn't, does, it makes no difference to anyone. Liberals love to do this. They love to use the innocence of children as some way to bolster their political arguments. And then if you say that that's dumb, they say, why are you attacking the children? Why? Why? These people are nuts. Uh, but Bernie Sanders had a very good fourth quarter in terms of money. From Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign today, $34.5 million. That's right, the socialist is bringing in all the cash. In fourth quarter 2019, from 1.8 million donations, um, the average donation was $18.53. This was great, though. This I really liked. The most common donor occupation, teacher. Ah, yes. Because public school teachers in America are part of, and even the ones who are conservatives, it's not their fault if they're stuck in this machinery, but they are part of 
a Democrat power election machinery. That is the reason that you have enormous amounts of money funneled from teachers unions to Democrat candidates at every level, local all the way up to the presidency. And the teachers unions are far more powerful in terms of monetary donations than the media ever talks about because they don't want it to seem like big money because it is. And this is where you have this unholy alliance of socialism within the sector of education in this country. And then on top of that, you have politicians who want to continue to be in power and they can buy off the teachers unions by giving, you know, by making sure that legislation is passed and by giving them goodies. And the teachers unions are getting this is all getting paid for by the taxpayer. And so then they turn out and they vote for Democrats. Right. This is just this is the cycle. Democrats vote for uh, I'm sorry. Uh, teachers vote for Democrats in office. Democrats in office give teachers and teachers unions more of what they want and so on and so forth. You know, who gets left out? The kids and the taxpayer. They are not a concern in this whole process. So it's not surprising at all that teachers because look, the, being a, a teacher, you got to be at least willing to deal with a lot of left wing colleagues if you're not left wing yourself. And the, you know, the educational system in this country, this is concern. We, we're losing here and we're losing big time still. We're losing bigly when it comes to public education in this country and the way that it is set up to support intersectional grievance politics, the way that we're, we're transforming kids to be uh, brain or really brainwashing kids and transforming them into uh, little socialists in waiting. I mean, this is what's going on in these public schools in many places, most places across the country. And we we all conservatives, we talk about it, but we don't really do anything about it, which frustrates me. I mean, some of you are saying, Buck, I homeschool my kids. Well, you are doing something about it. And, and other people are fighting for charter schools. I try to spread the the news, so to speak, about how different educational programs work and also honesty around what it would really take for us to have more a greater success rate, particularly for low income and, and minority low income students in the school system and what what's really required. It's not just more money. They keep saying that more money is what the teachers unions want and what the Democrats who are giving the money want so they can stay in power. Uh, but it's not surprising at Bernie Sanders most common donor occupation was was teachers. Um, and then among, among employers, I thought this was interesting, Amazon, Starbucks, and Walmart. I'm going to guess that those are almost entirely hourly wage employees. And I can understand why. If you're an hourly wage employee and you've got some guy who's promising that you're going to have free health care, you're going to have free school, you're just going to get a lot of free stuff, you're not thinking, well, hold on a second. What is this going to actually mean for me? My ability to rise, my ability for my family to become uh, in, entrenched in the middle class and develop some prosperity and financial security. Uh, you're just thinking, well, I'm going to get free stuff. And free stuff sounds good. This is the problem. I mean, you know, everyone loves Santa Claus. And I mean, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders is Santa Claus. I definitely can't do the Bernie Sanders voice today, by the way, because it's already it kind of forces you to sound like you have a cold when you don't. But when you do have a cold and you try to sound like Bernie Sanders, you just, you know, it sounds like you're having an aneurysm or something. It's just too much. Like it's too I'm already kind of stuffed up and, and nasally. So I, I can't do Bernie Sanders. This is stuff. So for those of you that say, Buck, I hate when you do the voices. Yeah, I just did one for you uh, today. We basically have no voices to do because it's uh, my inflamed vocal cords will not allow it. So uh, you got Bernie Sanders bringing in a whole bunch of cash. People are all excited about that. And then um, just one thing here. I, I wanted to play a little message from, from President Trump. Uh, would you, Producer Mark, please play clip nine? On trade, uh, we're very excited about trade. 
the China deal will be signed probably on January 15th. We put out a notice today, and I'll be going at some point to Beijing to be with President Xi. We have a great relationship, and we'll be doing something reciprocal. But I think more importantly, we'll be starting negotiations very soon on phase two. Phase two can be complete. A lot of people said, "Well, you're going to have phase two or phase two, phase three." I think we'll have phase two. I think that should complete it. But we'll be starting those negotiations very soon. I want to thank everybody. I want you to have a great year. Look, you're honorable people. You have to stay honorable. If you're honorable, I'm going to win the election by a lot. If you're not honorable, I'm just going to win the election by a little. So I'd rather have you be honorable. Okay? There we go. Message from Trump straight to you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, producer Mark pointed out that actually Trump there was saying he was talking to the media, but I'm saying it was a message delivered for you to hear about Trump talking to the media. See what I did there? If you're not honorable people, which the media will not be honorable, the media is all in on trying to destroy Trump. But see, I get it. You know, you, you caught your you caught yourself with your hand in the cookie jar. And then you caught my hand in the cookie jar of being wrong. I it, see how it's it is. my job to keep you honest, Buck. That is true. That's, that's that's what he does. The voice of, well, you know, he's the voice of the voice of producer Mark. All right, let's hit roll call. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for roll call. Man, it has been too long, team. I have missed you so. And so we have not gotten a roll call session in like a week and a half, which just feels like forever. Uh, I wanted to just uh, note that I appreciate those of you that were downloading and listening and catching up over the Christmas and uh, holiday break. Please do. And also my birthday, December 28th. There's a little special podcast for those of you who haven't heard it yet. You can download it. It was released on December 27th. Um, And also... I have one more. Oh, yes, please do. Pass the buck. Tell somebody to download the Buck Sexton Show. Subscribe is even better than download because then you download it every day in the new year. Um, I, all of you, you, you do spread the word. That's how we're getting. Look, we, we're getting more downloads every month. So that's because you're telling people about the show, and I cannot thank you enough for it. But if you want to give me a birthday present, get a friend to listen to the Buck Sexton Show and subscribe to it on the iHeart app or on Apple Podcasts. Uh, also watch Pluto uh, Pluto TV channel uh, 242 the first um, that I just I just messed that up didn't I? It's been a while. I just messed that 248 up. 248 buck. 248 channel 248. I'm sorry. I'm sick though, so I'm allowed to get. I mean, no, I've done I'm a sure great, great show. programming on 242. Done, I mean, I'm sure, but, yeah, yeah, but channel 248 the first Pluto TV. I, I've I've just look. I've got, I've done a great radio show today for a guy that like can't feel his can't feel his nasal passages. Yeah, I'm and a little surprised. A, a throat the size of you know it, it, like a grapefruit stuck in there. It sucks. So anyway, I'm just saying that's because I love you, team. I can't I can't be away from you another day. I missed you too much. I wanted some team buck cuddles. Now they're all like, good God, Buck. Good heavens, man. That's like uh, Lady Lady in the Tramp with a woman. Merciful heavens. Merciful heavens. A, we could start to work that into the show, too. Merciful heavens. That that seems like it's a, a good one. Um all right. Uh, Ethan, first stop on our roll call, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, if you want to do it on Facebook. Hey, Buck and staff, do you have a mattress sponsor? I'm looking for a new mattress. If you have one, I want to take a look and give the sponsor, you know, the credit for your show. Thanks. We don't, I think, have a mattress sponsor right now, and we should get one. We should get one. 
And I think that sounds like fun. By the way, those of you who listen to the show, if you have a business or you know somebody at a business that you think would be a good match for the Buck Sexton Show as a sponsor, you just reach out to us and tell us. We love that. We've gotten lots of people word of mouth or they they decide that they want to check us out because you know they they know somebody who really believes in the show so if you're out there and you're a business owner and you want to talk you reach out to us we'll put you in touch with our sales team and sponsor the show by all or part of the show not the whole show i mean you can sponsor the whole show if you want but that would be that would be pricey uh but yeah please do uh, let us know if you want to run some ads on the bucks action show if you're a good fit for us uh, we can do that um but we should get a match sponsor we don't have one right now maria Right. A few months ago, when you said you'd never seen the Twilight Zone, I almost fell out of my chair. Every holiday, the Sci-Fi Channel does a marathon. Netflix has it available. Every episode in order. So many classics. Shout out if you need episode recommendations, you'll get them. I love them all. You'll need this cultural reference in your repertoire. Happy New Year. Um, all right, Maria. I mean, I, if you say so, I could I could check it out. It's been a while, but uh, we can make we can make that happen. Uh, let's see. Jeff um, sent me a tweet. Okay, hold on a second. Milk. Buck, your birthday podcast was swell. I have such fond memories listening to you on Saturdays while watching my or while walking my English bulldog Bix along Magnolia Boulevard. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, Milk. It's, I guess that's a pseudonym. It's not really the name, but um, close enough. I don't know. I guess you're Is he related baby. to a cow? Hey. <laughs> yeah, I have a weird name. Am I related to a deer? Milk, thank you for writing in. I know that's not your name. I see your name actually here. I don't want to say it on air, though, because we've already said too much. Um, but thank you so much for writing in. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, man, the Saturday show, we've been going now. Uh, I, I got to do the math on this, so I stopped saying approximately, because I should know when we started doing this radio show. But it's like at least seven, maybe eight years now. It's been a long time. Um, Mike. Oh, please, Buck, check out today's Meet the Press. The whole program was dedicated to letting us know how conservatives believe all of Trump's 15,000 lies. Yes, 15,000 and how gullible and stupid we are. Check it out. Uh, I heard about this disinformation thing on Meet the Press. I mean, Chuck Todd is a joke. I saw this this uh, poll on Twitter. I tried to stay off Twitter for the most part on the break. I, I kind of did. I didn't really tweet anything. I saw this poll, though, where it was... Uh, who's a bigger fake newsman who pretends to be neutral or pretends to be a neutral party? Uh, Jake, Jake Tapper or Chuck Todd. That's tough. I, I go fake Tapper, but Todd is right there, too. Todd thinks that he's like not a partisan, which is crazy. But same thing's true of fake Jake. Uh, let's see here. Tammy writes, the happiest of all birthdays to you. And thank you for the birthday podcast. Those original Saturday squad days were so special, weren't they? Because of your show, I made friends. I made friends who I'm still in contact with. So thanks for that. Please keep your shows coming. Have a great 2020, Tammy. We've had people meet and create really long term friendships because of this show. There have been some marriages that have occurred. Because of this show, people met listening to this show and then some social media interaction and, you know, all of a sudden. So, you know, and we, what can I say? Producer Mark, we bring people together, you know? Now we just have to find a lovely lady for Mr. Sexton. Uh, you know, we'll see. By the way, speaking of dates, we need to uh, we need to get out with you and Brandon and go to an yeah, Island, Islanders game. No, I know. You got you to gotta come on air and tell me some dates. When you want to go see the island on air? What? I can't just text you the schedule. Yeah, no, text me, but then we'll announce it oh, so okay. I can yeah. like follow through, and the team doesn't think that I'm just here blowing okay. blowing smoke. 
What am I going to do it? If I ever get you to a baseball game, Wait, but I did, do we have to go out to Nassau to see it, though? Yes, obviously. Well, no. Well, that, no way. I want to do it here in Madison Square Garden. I don't want to go all the way to Well, Nassau. the Rangers play at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, but okay. Is that, but that's going to be a lot a more. A lot more expensive, A yes. lot more expensive. Maybe Barclays Center if the Islanders are playing a game there. They let's, have two different arenas. Maybe we could do that. All right. All right, let me, let's look at some tickets. You want me to go to Brooklyn? Yeah, Brooklyn. Ugh. Brooklyn. Terrible arena for hockey. Is it really? Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're going to go to a game, though. we gotta do, right. we got to do it for social media. How, how far away is the Nassau Coliseum? By how train? Do, yeah. Well, like 45 minutes. Ugh. But they, it's not close to anything. You have to take an Uber from there. Oh, yeah. oh gosh. Oh, good heavens. Now, merciful heavens. No, yeah. I can't do that. Uh, all right. We'll figure it out. Katie. Hey, Buck. I hope you had a Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, and a Happy New Year. Thank you for your bonus birthday podcast. You talked about your respect for Rush, and I believe you are the Rush of my generation. I love your show. You have me so stoked for election year. Election Day is my Super Bowl. My husband says if you have an Election Day party and if I'm invited, he'll take me to New York City for Election Day. Buck, can you make it happen? Thank you, Katie. Katie, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. It's very uh, humbling to be in any way uh, compared to Mr. Mr. Limbaugh. And as for uh, Super Bowl party, um, you would totally be invited if I were going to have one, but I am definitely not having one because I don't even know when the Super Bowl is. When is the Super Bowl? Uh, first of all, it's the first weekend in February. Second of all, she wasn't asking about a Super Bowl party. She was asking about an election night party because the election oh, is her thank Super you. Bowl. Again, I have a cold, so my brain yeah. is you know a little foggy right now. Election day party. Uh, I would love to have an election day party, but I'm going to be stuck working until, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to get away from that. Are, are we doing the show live that day? No, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be doing what I do and running around doing the things okay. on the TV. Yeah, you'll whatnot. be on TV. Yeah, 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 yeah I'll sure. be doing that stuff. Yeah. Why, do you want to go 24 hours, Mark? No. God. Yeah. So I'm hoping it'll be over by like 8 p.m. The Trumpster can just be doing yeah. victory dances. I love not, I love not doing shows live anymore. It's fantastic. Yeah, there you go. Um, Jeremy. Let's see. Uh, just listen to your birthday special. There's a great mineral-based liquid called Mivita that works awesome for sore throats and many other things. I've used it since I was a kid. My mom kept some in an eyedropper bottle. I would squirt a bit onto the back of my sore throat when it would get sore. It tastes a bit weird, but it's great stuff. I have never heard of Mivita. I always see this like Ocelococcinum stuff in the grocery store. Ocelococcinum or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? something or other. That people say is like a homeopathic remedy for for colds and everything else. I think this stuff is all placebo. Buck, that sounds like something you get in a store they, they can't be anywhere near a school. Um, yeah, I'm just saying they, they got uh, they got some homeopathic remedies that they say will help for colds. So there you go. Brian, happy birthday, my friend. All the best to you in 2020. Keep up the great work. Going to be an interesting year. Stay safe. Brian, that is all true, and I appreciate it. Taylor, we are getting a merch store in 2020, and Trump is getting a reelect, right? Um, ordered the shirt a year ago. Would love to rock some Freedom Hut gear. Uh oh. Oh yeah, we don't have gear anymore. Okay, we gotta do a gear man. We gotta do a gear store. We got so many things to do. I'll get on that. We have all new logos and everything. We have so new we, logos. We, have we gotta do. We gotta do a gear store. We gotta get. We have this some up new sayings year. also. Yeah, I know. We gotta. We gotta get merch happening. Yeah, yeah. I have so many things to do, man. Exactly. I'm not even, how do people do this stuff when they're married and have kids? I don't even understand. Yeah, I'm just married. I know I you're just married. Stuff. Yeah. 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 Anyway, well, I'm gonna go drink some tea as is producer Mark, and uh, we're gonna just get ready for an awesome show tomorrow. I will be here, even though I am sick, because that is how much I love you, team. Shields high.